Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're starting the show a little differently today. It's a show about financial abuse. Happens to many women in domestic violence and intimate partner violence situations and abusive situations. The show that today is about one woman. Her name is Coral Ann Teal. You know, once when I was trying to explain financial abuse to an interviewer, his response was, but don't all couples argue over money? He clearly didn't understand, or maybe I wasn't explaining it adequately. For whatever reason, unless you have experienced financial abuse and control, it really is hard to grasp the impact of it. Sometimes people think that if a woman has a job and is earning her own money, financial abuse isn't an issue, but it is. Controllers control, and they do it in a way that is subtle at first and may even make sense at the time they start it. Of course, your paycheck is made out to you, but most couples blend their money to pay household expenses. What if it just makes more sense for one partner, for example, to take over managing the money? Lots of couples do that. But the difference is that controllers use that to take financial control even further. A fully employed woman may discover that her name is no longer on accounts or that accounts have been drained and put in another bank. Or if she doesn't have her own money, she might gradually find that she has been less and less uh, access to money or that she has to keep asking or begging for money to meet her own needs or the household expenses. Another way of exerting financial control is to interfere with a woman's ability to get to work or look for a job or by constantly calling or appearing at her workplace until her performance suffers or she gets fired. Sometimes abusers apply for credit cards in the victim's name without their even knowing about it, and they run up huge debts or cancel amounts on credit cards, cancel accounts without telling the victim. And it happens a lot. 94 to 99 percent of domestic violence survivors report economic abuse. Sometimes it's the way the abuse begins to escalate. Since it's about one in four women experience domestic violence in this country, that's a lot of women whose financial security and ability to leave a bad situation is jeopardized. There is an organization called the Purple Purse Campaign that's setting out to help educate people about economic or financial abuse, and their spokesperson is athlete Serena Williams. There's a film and other educational information designed to let people know about this topic. Our show today is also designed to let you know about financial abuse. The interview with Coral Rose Teal is the personal story of a woman who has experienced multiple forms of abuse and violence, but the financial abuse she has suffered has continued for more than 20 years. She lives on disability. Sometimes she's been forced to live out of her car. And even though her children are all grown up and her ex-husband is financially secure, she continues to be hit with financial abuse through the courts. As you listen to the following story, please try to understand Coral's situation. And remember that this is Coral's voice and her story, but it is also the experience of thousands of victims of domestic violence. To learn more about financial abuse, go to purplepurse.com. Tough topic sometimes, and today, oh my gosh, is it a tough topic? And we have a special guest with us. We have Coral Anika Teal. Coral, thank you for joining us, and I just can't wait to get started with our conversation. It's great to be here. Good. Coral, we are focusing the show specifically on financial abuse and what that means, what that entails, what some women experience. And we can't, I don't think, do that justice without spending just a few minutes talking about your personal story, if you don't mind. You've been through the ringer. And I know one of the points that we talked about off air is how 
very little people understand who have never gone through situations like this. I know I've I've recently had some health things. It's tough to understand those particular health things until you go through them. It's difficult to understand court systems until you go through that. And it is certainly difficult to understand the level of abuse that some women endure unless you've been through it. We spoke about this and about how difficult it is for people who don't have that in their experience to truly grasp what it's like and why women are trapped in situations and why they they stay, which I always say they don't stay, they just don't leave when everybody else thinks they ought to. Um, And one of the things that I want us to talk a little bit about is your experience and background. First of all, let's start with your education. You have a good education. You have a good work experience. Tell us all about your accomplishments. Well, um, my education in high school, I was expected to take uh, ground school and flight training. My father was a captain in the Air Force, so at the time I was driving, that was expected, and um, I was expected to pay for it too, but I very much enjoyed that. Um, I flew out of uh, Pearson Air Park in Vancouver, Washington, um, and took ground school and uh, passed and uh, soloed within about eight hours and uh, took a couple years of flight training. And then at the same time, after I graduated from high school, I um, enrolled in court reporter school. And so I have legal um, assistant, legal secretary, and court reporting training. Um, I I was a straight-A student uh, from ninth through 12th grade in Cobal Victorian. I graduated from Columbia River High School in Vancouver, Washington. And um, with, uh, in 12 months after court reporter school, I was a juvenile court reporter at 19 years old uh, for the Superior Court of Washington in Longview, Washington. I also worked as a personal secretary to two Superior Court judges and the bailiff clerk. And uh, about the time I was taking court reporter school, I um, met my ex-husband on the bus during the fuel crises, and I really did not give him my phone number. Um, He just um, heard about my father, who um, he had uh, flown FBI agents uh, for the D.B. Cooper case uh, earlier, and so people were talking about that. And um, within a few weeks, my ex-husband showed up at our home. And I, I had um, grown up in a very uh, abusive environment, and I did not know how to get safe within my own home life, nor did I ha- know how to get safe from this person who showed up in my life. And things um, went very badly after that. And uh, but now, um, you know, 20 years ago, I sought safety from him, and uh, I've learned a lot. And I, I hope this program. Um, will not only encourage other survivors and victims, I, I call myself both, <laughs> both are happening at the same time, but I hope that friends and family, neighbors, coworkers will listen and possibly um, read websites and, and talk to other people, maybe go seek some counseling or help at local domestic violence shelters um, to learn more. And that's basically most every woman's um, highest, uh, I guess the, um, I'd say the biggest problem is how many people within our society support our abusers, including the church and the courts. And I'm basically one mother among millions 
who sought safety from domestic violence and I lost, which was most precious to me. I know today we're going to talk about financial abuse, but for every mother, it is our children. And that is our highest price. And even Oprah, she will say that America is the safest country in the world. And we all say no. No, it is not. When our babies and children are stripped from us, when most of us end up living out of our car, when we are in litigation for years, mine's been 20 years, we're sued, our court costs are are just out of this world. Mine's been a quarter million in 20 years. Um, It's uh, the cost, the lack of work just due to going to court. But I basically, um, I, I was not prepared. I Throughout my childhood, I was sexually trafficked by my mother uh, for years from 6 to 10, and that was horrific. Uh, It was just my life. Um, As I said, I was a straight-A student in high school. There was many things I accomplished, but I was severely, severely broken inside, and I lost my voice and identity before I even had the ability to ever find it. And uh, my great uncle was my abuser. He was a murderer and a sex offender. He got out of prison and our family supported him. And he was not supposed to be around young girls. He was not supposed to live in our city, but both happened. And um, whoever was supervising him was AWOL. But that was my beginning. And uh, my ex-husband and my mother, a lot of family members were just very build people, and uh, I just happen to be so, the person I close I to him. I interrupt but, you, but yes. I, I want to make sure that our audience understands. Sometimes when we hear stories about this, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, if this has not happened to us, if this has not been in our backgrounds or our experiences, we tend to think that that's something for all those other people. That's, that's some sort of anomaly. That's some sort of strange story that really doesn't have any impact in my life. But the fact is this happens to many women, um, an alarming one in number. Three. One in three. One in and three. And I say that number. I didn't report my abuse until a couple of years ago. Um, decades later, I called the Richland, Washington Police Department. I said, I want my case to be in the statistics. It's all, everybody knows about it. Um, everybody knew it was happening. I just happened to be the victim and and what was sad is my uncle was even charged and in court for molesting other young girls at the same time I was being put in his room but it's one in three girls I think one in four or five boys who are sexually raped by the the age of 18 one in five women in the military will be raped Uh, we are we have an incredible rape culture and even our judges now are only giving three-month sentences like the Brock Turner case to men who rape unconscious women. Uh, anyway, that's another whole but that, subject. That's but a different yes. show, but I just yes, wanted to make sure. It's a beginning, and it's not a good be- beginning. <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, so and it is epidemic. I want to make sure that people understand that although your story is obviously uh, an extreme story, it's not necessarily, in all aspects, a unique story. And so we no, come from a background where um, women go through some pretty horrific stuff, and then they mature and they meet a man to marry. used to be, 20 years ago, that people would say, well, why did she pick such a man? But we know better now. We know that with so many abusers out there, it's kind of luck of the draw. You know, it's luck of well, the I draw. Well, I did not pick this person. This person ended up mostly stalking, and uh, I he was six years older, and uh, 
he ended up even moving um, his, uh, he was working on his master's and he moved his program from Corvallis, Oregon at OSU up to Longview, Washington, where I had a job. And eventually, and I'll just uh, take a background here too, that I was, um, during the 70s, I was around a lot of fundamental Christians in school with teachers. There was the Bill Gothard movement that's about submission of women, a very heavy patriarchy uh, that's not healthy for anyone, man or woman. But I was raised, and certainly um, doesn't help when you're dealing with somebody who's already an abusive person. That just gives them right, fuel right. for the fire. So anyway, so, like so okay, many and of I want to make sure yes. you know because clearly we could spend a whole show talking about your personal yes. experience and those of many women. But I want to segue into the financial situation. Yes. When we hear about financial abuse, I know, I, and I need to tell you this, Coral. I did a radio show several years ago. Um, with a representative from the local domestic violence advocacy program. And we met with the radio host. We were on the air, and we talked about financial abuse. And he said, well, what is that? And I said, well, for example, you know, it's a control of money. And, 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 and we tried to explain what it was. And his response was, but everybody fights over money. All married couples have disagreements no. about money. Why is this any different? And we were not able, I don't feel, to successfully explain to him the difference. So you're in a marriage, you're in a relationship, and sure, even normal, happy, everybody argues over where we're going to allocate the money, where where is the money coming in, who's going to control the money, that kind of thing. But how is it different in these abusive situations when we're talking about money during the relationship? How is it different? Well, I'll just define financial abuse. Um, I believe it is very, um, it's not understood, and it is one of the most powerful methods of keeping a survivor trapped in an abusive relationship, and it, it diminishes our ability to stay safe even after leaving an abusive relationship. And for me, I had no, um, I was not allowed to work outside the home. Um, my ex-husband was very into patriarchal um, belief system. So I was supposed to be working at home, no contraceptives. I was to have every baby um, that God provided, uh, allowed. I had no access to our accounts. I was not allowed to know our accounts. I had um, very limited um, outside contact, and eventually we lived in the middle of um, nowhere, <laughs> and uh, just very limited. He, he was involved in about eight different um, fundamental Christian cults, but my my contact with healthy people, even after I married him, um, became very limited. Uh, they did come back in my life at the time. I did seek safety, but for 20 years, basically, my job was homekeeping, and uh, I was exposed to his fundamental cults and forced, abused, tortured, um, and uh, people can read my published memoir and uh, website for more information on that, but uh, eventually you break down. No one, no one can survive. And you're, you know, even my OBGYN, um, he looked at me and I was pregnant again with an 11th child, even after a time I'd been severely ill and depressed for 20 months. And he said, go get the best. And he used some other words, attorney, you can find in divorce fee. And I, he said, you will not be alive next year if you don't listen to me. And I did eventually, after my, it was my eighth, eighth child, I did seek attorney help. 
and I took boxes from our files while um, out-of-state people came to help me during the day so I could get away and take care of myself and get to an attorney. But I basically sought an attorney to report crimes in our home, um, not just the divorce, but to seek safety for my children. And I was threatened even by Baptist pastors and my ex that I could not report crimes. But basically, you become very isolated. You have no money. You have no accounts. I um, first year I was married, um, I had wonderful reference letters from Superior Court judges, and within weeks I got a job, job as a legal secretary to the district attorney in Corvallis, Oregon. After six weeks, my ex-husband uh, demanded I, I leave my job, and so for the next 20 years I was, um, and even to this day, you're so, you don't have Social Security credits. And uh, so that was some of the financial abuse, but uh, basically isolation and financial abuse is okay. One and of the I want to again interject here, track. Coral, that because your case is so extreme, I don't want the listeners to think, okay, so that only happens in these huge extreme cases. Your no. <laughs> financial abuse was absolutely blatant, but it happens more subtly in some cases. So, for example, you may start yes. out sharing things, but then pretty soon it becomes easier for one one person to handle all the accounts, and then pretty soon that person's opening other accounts, or that person you're ha you're ending up having to ask for money. You're ending up uh, having not enough money to pay the bills. And uh, in one case that I know of, it was just a constant struggle. The the husband was the bread earner, and he kept a very tight uh, uh, control of money. Um, but in some cases where the women are, are employed and make good money, there's the pressure to turn that money over to the abuser, and then the abuser yes. allocates. And when the abuser is doing all this, when the abuser is um, um, chewing this stuff around, it actually starts to make sense. Well, I'm the one that's better at math, so I should be the one balancing the accounts, or I'm the one. It can be a very subtle thing. It doesn't yes. have to be a real dramatic thing. And five years later, all of a sudden, you realize you have nothing in your own name. You have no control over the money right. that's coming in. You have nothing. How well, even my life, life insurance policy he cashed that I had bought at 12 years old, so when I left, I had nothing. No, there was nothing left of me, even things I bought, even my own car. There was nothing. And even yeah. the courts, even the judge laughed at our court hearing in 1996 and said, you'll end up on the street. And I did not. Um, his estate at the time I left was over half a million dollars, and I got a small, small IRA with 150000 already after a year of attorney fees, so there was nothing. And I was sued for twice that I earned, even as a disabled woman, for child support. And another problem that happens with many, and this is not, um, this is not just my case. I've, I received hundreds and hundreds of, of messages uh, all year long from women in situations like mine. And we go through litigation. It starts out five years. It's 10, 15, 20. Mine's on 22 years now. And uh, we are just taken to court. One woman told me her her ex-husband ended up in prison, um, but on and off for six years, she was in court every six uh, weeks. And it uh, just financially just destroyed her too. So um, for me, I ended up living in my car for three years. And, um, and at the same time, and I'll just share the courts, um, <laughs> they are very patriarchal also. And they, um, I believe that um, the correlation between our patriarchal society and our patriarchal court system 
just understanding that has assisted me in my survival. But here I am living out of my car, fully destitute, fully disabled, and my ex-husband and the woman judge also charge me for more child support. Um, at the same time, they take away my right to even write my children. Um, I lost all my eight children um, and my nursing baby in the divorce a few years earlier. But um, And then I'm living under an address protection program from my ex-husband, too, which the courts know. And they even gave him the children, knowing all the abuse. But I'm sued. And then he's not happy with that. He takes our case to the Oregon State of Appeals. And at that time, even while living out of my car and disabled and destitute, I think I want to help improve my life. So I attend college for two terms. I'm getting straight A's. I'm working part-time and doing court. And then the Oregon State Appeals case occurs. And he wants to sue me for 50000 more in child support. And up to then, I've even paid an extra 25000 to help my older son with college, tuition, um, housing, transportation. So I'm doing above even what I'm asked because he was my son and he needed help. But so I have to drop out of college. Um, legal aid will not help um, a battered woman with divorce, child custody, or child support issues. So I'm going to law libraries in Oregon attempting to understand how to write a legal brief and I do so. I, I um, type out a 65-page legal brief, and a year and a half later, the case is dismissed. But it takes a lot of time, and you're losing your life, your yeah. your health, and meanwhile, your yeah. Meanwhile, so we we start out in the relationship where there can be either very dramatic or very subtle um, um, financial control, control over the money. Yes. Um, which, in fact, then I mean, I. I I talk to so many women for whom nothing uh, like this has ever occurred. And they will say, and I must confess that when I was young and, and single, I would, I would say similar things. They will say, well, <laughs> any man ever does that to me and I'm out of there. The oh, problem no. is, is that it is so subtle and it's like a spider web. So you enter this relationship, and you start having children, and then you don't have the job, and then you don't – it is one tentacle around you after another, and then when you yes. realize that you are totally stuck, you can't just be out of there. Um, well, there's and two we, things. The children, um, usually they threaten they'll take your children from you, and even the American Psychological Association said fathers who batter the mother are twice as likely to seek full custody as their children of their children as nonviolent fathers, but um, you're, it's the children well, and, they get and the them. finances. You know, and the finances. Well, again, I'm interrupting yes, you, do. but I want you to know this. Last week on our program, we had uh, Joan Meyer um, from, yes. um, and and she has done some really remarkable research on how courts handle abuse and alienation accusations. And her statistics on the number of abusive fathers who are granted full custody is absolutely startling. It's I believe just it's 70%. hard to I believe yeah. it's 70%. I have a wonderful quote also, um, Dr. Evan Stark. He wrote course, uh, a book called Course of Control, How Men Entrap Women in Personal Life, and it addresses our finances. But his um, definition, he says, course of control shares general elements with other capture or course of conduct crimes such as kidnapping, stalking, and harassment, including the facts that it is ongoing and it, its perpetrators use various means to hurt, humiliate, intimidate, exploit, isolate, and dominate their victims. Like hostages, victims of course of control are frequently deprived of money, 
food, access to communication or transportation, and other survival resources, even as they are cut off from family, friends, and other support through the process of isolation. And his books are wonderful, and uh, I, it described my life. I, I share that my abusive husband used coercive control, isolation, and intimidation tactics to strip me of my personhood, safety, and freedoms as a United States citizen. I couldn't even get in my car after the birth of my seventh child, put a key in the ignition, and drive myself to my OBGYN. I was forced to have home births because my ex-husband did not want me seeing doctors. I had no medical care and hemorrhaged, and I knew I was in trouble, and he denied me medical care on numerous occasions, and even many friends and, and uh, people in my life wrote affidavits for the court, even witnessing that. But um, they laughed at me in court saying, didn't you have a driver's license? And I said, yes. Did you have a key to a car? And I said, yes. But they do not understand the abuse if you disobey and the cruelty. Yeah. And that's what I find is so obscene, even with my ex-husband's family, within the churches that all support him, it is obscene. The years and decades of torture that I have survived, and even now the court abuse for 20 years, and they all support him fully. They'll all go to court with him, and they will, um, it's like they're blaming me. What is wrong with you? And I think as a society, we need to stop doing that. And people who tell women, why didn't you leave, should sit down and shut up unless they're there to stand with <laughs> that woman for the next 20 years while you're litigated to death and while you end up homeless. But homelessness, I found some research on the um, United States Department of Health and Human Services, and they say that between 22 and 50% of all homeless women report that domestic violence was the immediate cause of their homelessness. And women and men who experienced food and housing insecurity in the past 12 months reported a significant higher 12-month prevalence of rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner compared to women and men who did not experience food and housing insecurity. So homelessness, uh, that's I think that's, that's an one of the reasons, itself. Coral, why I, I do this show and uh, shows like this one. For those people in our listening audience who have never experienced or who don't have a loved one who has experienced um, this kind of abuse, very difficult to understand. And I think the go-to position for most people is, well, what? why did this happen to you? What did you do? What Where instead do? of thinking, wait a minute, maybe you are homeless, maybe you are financially destitute, maybe... Maybe you're drinking. Maybe you are seeming irrational. Maybe that came because of what you experienced. And I think it's very hard for people to see. I know very well-educated people, people who um, uh, you would think could get it, and yet they don't. We want to, we want to blame the victim. Um, we want to, especially mothers who've lost their children. We've all been raised with the notion that, a good mother doesn't lose her children. I mean, I've That's talked false. with attorneys who say, well, the first thing he says to a woman who's divorcing is, are you a drinker? Are you a drug addict? Then don't worry about your children. But the fact is you need to worry about custody of your children, even if you are a perfectly adequate, perfectly uh, fine mother, um, because abusers will abuse in any way that they can. And one of the best ways to abuse a mother is by taking away your children if you can. So it, it's a, a very tricky thing. Want to come back? You know, it, it's hard to corral the show, and, and so I, I feel like I'm kind of pushing it a little bit, but I want to make sure that we stick with this financial abuse. 
So we have a relationship that has either that has one way or another, slowly or quickly, become financially abusive. And the woman now does not have money at her resource, money at her control. It's hard to get out. It's certainly hard to take your children. It's hard to find a place to go. Um, I can only imagine you with eight children, well, at the time, what, seven children, where you had to leave. Where are you going to go with your children? Yes, I had eight children, and I did escape um, when my restraining order was overturned in January of 1996. My ex-husband brought his mother in, and... uh, I knew that I was going to be in a lot of hurt. Um, you don't say no to some people. So I got a phone connected in a back bedroom. I got a refrigerator put in, and I thought I was going to hole in for several months. And I realized a back bedroom where, Coral? Just where in the home. Go? I had the the judge ordered me back in the home, even acknowledging that I'd been abused. He overturned the restraining order. So from day one, things just went very badly. And um, I did escape. I, my friends came and helped me, and I took my younger children with me, and I hid in motel rooms under other people's names. And uh, I uh, waited out for three months. The judge even allowed me to live under hiding. He saw many affidavits that are published in my book and at my website of the severe abuse. And uh, I was also protecting my younger daughters, um, the church and my ex-husband, uh, did not want the rapes reported, and I did. And I lost my daughters, and the person who is now an Oregon sex offender can see my daughters any time. So things just went very badly. And I just say, leave in a family system that condones domestic violence, rape, and the molestation and rape of children, psychological murder and coercive control, spiritual and ritual abuse was my only safe and sane choice. I did not think of what was going to happen to me afterwards. I just knew I'd probably die in that environment. So, you know, you so just... you're sitting here, and again, let's let's go to the the financial aspect of this. Yes. So you are sitting there with no money in your name at that point, and you you said after the divorce you did get some sort of um, financial compensation, but it was all went, eaten up. It court. was all eaten up <laughs> at the courts, right? Most most all of it, yes. And then I was yes. sued for child support. Um, even a woman that hadn't worked outside the home for 20 years and was fully disabled. I was sued for child support, and even today, I will report on this program when you talk about financial abuse, um, my ex in the state of Oregon will begin garnishment of me 20 years later for a fraudulent child support judgment he obtained against me in 99. Um, He had a hearing um, that I was not informed about. I've been at 45 court hearings in 20 years, and it was one um, that I actually moved back to Salem, Oregon. I was awaiting trial um, the DA um, had recommended since I was able, disabled that they would help possibly lower my child support um, uh, order. And then they dropped out of the case, and I didn't have an attorney, and I everybody had my address, but nobody informed me. So it's a child support judgment twice of what I earn, and it amounts right now to 3800 And he could dismiss this judgment. It's unfair. It wasn't right. It, it's To me, it's fraudulent because I wasn't told. But right now, they're going to be garnishing my meager under-poverty income, which will be my entire food budget. Okay, but that's just another that form. That's another form of, ew, this is 20 years later, and he still does not want me to survive. And part of this, and if I could just interject this throughout the show, the patriarchy. Um, he and his church members, friends, family, 
um, many of them don't believe in divorce. They don't care that I was abused, but they believe that they are God's instruments to punish me because I divorced. And that is a real, real ideology, and they yeah. don't care. And I've called even, he has a relative who married us, Portland, Oregon. I have contacted him about this matter a few years ago, and I said, I need help. They've even threatened uh, jail time for me, uh, revoking my um, driver's license. They have revoked my passport, and I have relatives in Denmark I cannot see now because of that. But this is all part of the financial abuse, and it is not um, about anything except for control and oppression and subjugation. It has, he has a half a million dollar state. He's still working as an engineer. He does not need money. He just knows it will destroy me, and he wins, and yeah. they win in the form of patriarchy. So um, that's, and, and even Judith Herman, um, she writes incredible books about trauma and recovery, but Judith Herman, she says that the function of domestic violence is to preserve male supremacy. And she says perpetrators understand intuitively that the purpose of their behavior is to put women in their place and that their behavior will be condoned by other men and women, as long as the victim is a legitimate target. Thus, women live with the fear of men, which pervades all of life and which convinces women that their weakness is innate and unchangeable. And the legal system is designed to protect men from the superior power of the state, but not to protect women or children from the superior power of men. It therefore provides strong guarantees for the rights of the accused, but essentially no guarantees for the rights of the victim. If one set out by design to devise a system for provoking intrusive post-traumatic symptoms, one could not do better than a court of law. And I feel that our family courts well, are just... Yeah. Again, let's let's system. get back to the financial stuff, because uh, this court sure. of law thing is what we're talking about. The financial abuse starts in the relationship when the, the victim chooses to leave the relationship and is able to leave the relationship. Financial abuse then beca- takes a different flavor. It takes a different tone. And you've already alluded, uh, you've already talked about, you didn't allude, you talked about how that financial abuse continues through the courts, continued litigation, continually filing cases. And I'm always astounded because there is a thing in most states, in most districts, where if a person is frivolous in filing just suit after suit after suit, there's supposed to be a way to kind of shut them down. There's supposed to be a way to penalize them for doing that. And yet I've heard of some really egregious situations where somebody is filing, a, an abuser is filing case after case after case that drains any kind of uh, financial right. security that the victim may be left with, and yet no court steps in to actually shut it down. But they do have that capability. So what we're talking about with the financial abuse is that this starts small. It starts in the relationship. It can be either dramatic or it can be very slow going. I know some cases where it's been 15, 20 years before a woman realizes that she has nothing in her name anymore. And she may even have been writing the checks and paying the household bills. She may have been thinking absolutely logically that we're all putting our money into the joint account where my paycheck is going there, his paycheck is going there. And then suddenly they realize that they actually have no control over the finances. We've already talked about how difficult it is to, in fact, actually leave a situation when you discover that. But then the financial abuse after the leaving begins. One of, the, one of those methodologies is with the courts, 
but the, there's also the requirement for all sorts of psychological testing and inspections and uh, counseling. And did you experience any of that? Where other than the courts, where there were, uh, and it couldn't be, it can be that these are required supposedly for court, but they are a separate entity that needs to be paid and that that money yes. gets sunk into. Did you experience I that? I was. Um, I took uh, six. Uh, court-ordered psychological exams, six. Many of them were four hours by some of the top psychologists and psychiatrists in Oregon to prove my will, mental well-being, and I passed them all. My ex-husband was um, court-ordered one, and he failed his. Um, but he also was awarded the children. But that was very expensive, and uh, and I was living in hiding at the time and going to court and taking the psychological test and taking care of my children. So it was a very um, intense time, and I yes, I did have to go through that. And court um, was very abusive. Uh, a lot of women um, weigh that if they've been through abuse already. Uh, just you need to um, just prepare yourself for humiliation, being shamed, being laughed at. Um, my sexual abuse as a child was brought up in court. I was shamed about that. I was shamed about a depression I'd had years earlier. Um, things I had said. Um, uh, I guess even my appearance, um, and it, so it became a place where you were just shamed and humiliated and made fun of, and they're making fun of me and they're putting, you know, they're shaming me in court in a divorce hearing about that, and uh, so there was many things. You just have to be prepared. You have to be prepared for the worst, and the worst will happen. I told my attorney if he treated my ex-husband like that, I'd walk out. And uh, I, I don't believe in that uh, form of shaming and degrading people. But it, I have all the um, 20 years of uh, audio tapes, of all the audio tapes, the um, 45 hours of video depositions. They put a camera right in my face and made fun of me, brought up things. My father, who had passed away many years ago, had said, my ex would collect things, I, I suppose, and that's what they throw out at you at moments like this. But, um, yes, uh, prepare for the worst, and if you can't think of what that is, uh, it'll be even worse than that. But uh, Okay, so I you've, find... got, you've got yes. the, the financial abuse that started during the relationship. You decided to leave. Then you've got the financial hardship of trying to find a place to live because you can't just pick up and go somewhere. People want money to have you live somewhere. I mean, you might have a friend that will let you move in for a week, a month, but you, you can't yes. just move in. So you have the issue of housing. How do you find housing, especially in your case where you had several children? And yes. then you've got the court expenses. Court is Going to court is not cheap in and of itself. You've got guardians ad litem. You've got evaluators. You've got all of these expenses. Filing things for the court costs money. Making copies costs money. And then, of course, you've got the lawyers. Lawyers are not giving away their services. And as you pointed out earlier, you may think, well, there's legal aid or there's this or there's that that helps people. That doesn't help in custody issues. I do not know of a single program, do you, Coral, that actually helps in a custody no. issue? No, no. And, and And I've called all the way to the um, Washington, D.C., just in my own research, and you'll give them an outline of your own case history, and you'll tell them even in the letter that legal aid does not help in these certain cases and they'll write a short letter giving you the number of legal aid. And that's the head yeah. of the Department of Homelessness and Domestic Violence for the United States in Washington, D.C. So yeah. you get false information. Did you, and Did you ever call the domestic violence hotline? 
um, at the time I sought safety, um, friends had given me, um, in fact, the woman um, was a co-worker of my ex-husband, and she knew I was being abused, just, and she gave me a piece of paper one time when I was at Hewlett Packard in Corvallis, Oregon, a few months before I sought safety, and it was the local um, domestic violence shelter, and uh, she had been abused in the workplace for years by my ex-husband, and she even filed affidavits in my court case. And uh, so she gave me their number, but I called them, and they're full. So I did have help, and I did have a place to stay, um, a former high school friend. Her parents were away, so I had a home to stay in in Vancouver, Washington, and the courts allowed me to be there And uh, while I was doing uh, going through depositions. So that was that start. And then once my children, um, the judge told me he was leaving my younger children and nursing baby with me, and 10 days later I got a court judgment saying he removed them all. So I was abruptly um, separated from my children. I went into shock, but even in a time of shock, I went out and got a job. Uh, I I needed to figure out how to care for myself, and eventually I worked in a warehouse. And um, then uh, my disabilities, I I um, had to quit that job just due to disabilities. So um, then a few years later, I ended up just from all the court abuse, and then I had a um, physician involved in my case. Then I lived out of my car for three years. So it's been a journey. I, Like I say, a lot of people, um, they have cited and helped my ex-husband, and I tell people if it wasn't for all the enablers, a lot of uh, domestic violence uh, victims would do better. And yeah, uh, the world needs right. to hear that. The world needs to hear that. And I had a, a friend, um, Sergeant Major Brian Jackson, he wrote um, Senator Merkley, of Oregon on my behalf, and he says it so well, and I will quote him, just a paragraph here, because everybody that when I post this, they relate to it, and the world needs to hear this. The people who are not helping need to hear this. I did meet with uh, U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley, but he says, um, as I watch the news today, I see all sorts of other cases pretty similar to Coral Teal's. The thing that I just do not understand about our system is why or how we can allow what happened to Coral and is still happening to happen. Some are held against their will, raped, battered, abused, and then glorified, as are the three ladies from Ohio. Guys are considered heroes as a result of being the person to make a phone call to the authorities about it. Then we have those in the same situation, and maybe even worse, who are blamed, ostracized from society, stripped not only of their children, but of their dignity, ridiculed, and even forced into hiding, and received absolutely no support from anyone in the justice system, who, by the way, are supposed to be by the people, of the people, and for the people. And that's an excerpt of a letter to U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley from Sergeant Major Brian K. Jackson of the U.S. Marine Corps. And I think he said it so well. Here, here's women that were kidnapped, and when they got safe, the whole world was surrounding them. But a wife, a girlfriend seeks safety. We're ostracized. We go into hiding. We're stripped of everything. We're litigated in court for years, and there's no support team showing up. So that's something um, people in our society need to think about and ask why. Coral, again, I want to try and pull it back to this financial abuse issue. You said, I would have thought that after 20 years, it's done. I mean, if you, I, I, I've not done this. I assure you I've not done this. But my understanding is, is that if you stiff somebody for a bill, if you owe somebody some money, 
there's only so many years that they can go after it. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not an attorney. But that's what my understanding was, is that, for example, okay, say I go stay at a hotel, a big expensive hotel, and I rack up 500 or $1,500 in bills, and I don't pay it. And they sue me, and they get a judgment. And if I can't pay it, then they can't collect it uh, if I don't have the money or whatever. I think that if you get a judgment, it's for a certain length of time, and then you can renew it, but that's also for a certain length of time. And then eventually you're just out of luck. You can't keep trying to collect it because there is a, a limitation on that. And yet you mentioned that there's, you know, 20 years ago you got a judgment for child support that you weren't able to yes. pay, and they're still going after it. How can that be? Well, the law is, and I've called the governor's office, I've called the governor's advocacy office, all the um, state um, senators, representatives, I've called the DA's office. The law is that child support is for the rest of your life, um, if you're um, on SSI like the or student SSI, loans, the child bill. support and student loans, is that how it is? Yes, yes. Uh, for <laughs> right now, Oregon, I know for sure, but Oregon, I've even called, and they said yes, and they can even order me jail time. That's been a threat, and my ex-husband and his friends and family and my children have been okay with that. They can uh, revoke your driver's license, which happens to a lot of battered women um, that are in my similar situation. Uh, right now, I have a revoked passport, so I cannot leave the country. Um, but right now, as of today, they said within 30 to 60 days, yes, they are going to start garnishment at 15%. They don't care if that will be your food money. They don't care. And my ex-husband could um, dismiss this any moment. It's about power and this, even this situation right now. And so I find it okay. obscene. Yeah. Coral, I'm also going to play devil's advocate here because I'm sure there are plenty of ex-husbands out there who are paying child support who are facing the same rules. You know, that if they don't pay it, their driver's licenses will be revoked. And so they're sitting there going, yay, I'm glad that it works that way for some, for the for the women's side as well as for the men's side. And how do you respond to that? How would you respond to that kind of a comment? Well, I do believe that people who have a good job, that have health, um, they should be um, supporting their children. And I have. I even uh, paid an extra 25000 to one of my children on top of paying child support for him until he was 25. You know, my older children who had homes, I was still paying child support because I didn't have an attorney to to get it changed. But um, I believe everybody should help their children if they can. Um, what I find with us batter, battered mothers, um, when we lose our children, because we reported crimes, that's a lot of the reason of why we lose our children. If you go to um, Eileen King of Child Justice, I went to one of their fundraisers and some of the top attorneys were there just telling women, don't report crimes, you will lose your children, you will lose contact. And that's just what is going on now in our court system. But we lose our children, we lose contact, we lose visitation. Many of us are in hiding from our ex-husbands and often many of us end up with nothing. And uh, the disparity between myself living under poverty level, and my ex-husband, who has a debt-free half-a-million-dollar estate and is still working as an engineer, the disparity is not um, is not considered. So, uh, And my children are all grown up now. Many of them have very good jobs and homes. Uh, so that's, that's my take on it. Okay, because um, I hear men saying, well, I'm, I'm living at poverty level, I'm living in a little dump, and I still have to pay this money to my ex-wife, and it doesn't go away. 
so, you know, as I said, I just wanted to play devil's advocate there. I also hear many, many stories like yours and many, many stories where that child support was ordered, it never gets paid, there's not enough money to hire lawyers to make it happen, which is usually the case. Uh, in order, Everybody thinks, well, if a judge tells an abuser he has to do something, that's it. You know, slap your hands together and dust yourself off because that has just been resolved. But in fact, it's not resolved because then what happens is the abuser doesn't do it. The victim has to hire an attorney to go back to court, and the attorney then says to the court, Your Honor, he was supposed to do this within 30 days. He didn't do it. And then the judge says, oh, well, you have 30 days to get it done. And if you don't do it, you're going to be back in court. Each one of those court appearances requires an attorney. Most people, especially victims, don't have the money to keep doing that time after time after time to get the child support. So what usually happens is the child support just disappears. You're not going to get it. I think one of the things that I'm hearing from your story is, is that the reason that this has been going on for 20 years is because somebody has enough money to keep it going for 20 years. And the money that it has cost to go after your child support probably exceeds many times over the amount of the 15% of your disability check that's actually going to be garnished and going to pay the child support. I understand in my case, um, my ex-husband's family was supportive of him, and I believe he, he was helped financially. And then the DA's office has helped him. Even me as a victim living in hiding, somehow that has um, uh, that just occurred. And I find um, part of why he's legally stalked me, um, it, I have to sign an affidavit in response. And so I've usually gone to a border of whatever state I'm living. Um, I don't want him to know where I am. And so it, that's another financial part. But many of these perpetrators, they legally stalk you just to find out where you are, and they can use court to do that. And I do believe laws should be changed. And uh, Karen Huffer, you've had her on your program, is that correct? Yes. She's the one mm-hmm. who writes a lot about legal stalking. So that's a very good subject for all to study about, and I believe better laws should be put in place. But financially, yes, it's it's very draining, and you're attempting to start a new life somewhere. And I, I remember moving into hiding many states away, and I had to provide a P.O. box, and it was filled with court motions um, upon arriving there. And um, you're just... Uh, you're exhausted, you're exhausted of years of court, and you're still doing this. And no, an uh, attorney will cost twenty to 40000 to retain, and um, legal aid will not help. And so you show up on your own. And even my mentor of 20 years, who's used my book as a college text uh, for a nursing student, she's been at court with, uh, in court with me, has written many affidavits for court. She sat in court while a judge told me to go get an attorney. I told him I was homeless. I said I have no monies. For an attorney, and he yelled at me and told me to go get an attorney. He repeated it three times. The judges don't even understand that there is no help. There are some safe homes um, that do have uh, possibly some pro bono help on the side. That is really rare. There's some self home, uh, safe homes that will have a legal advocate um, that will possibly show up with you when you're getting a restraining order, but the legal help is really rare. Yeah. I think that one of the things that also is misunderstood by the public about these horrible situations is that they somehow think that if you're married to the doctor, lawyer, candlestick maker, the CEO, if you come from wealth, you're immune from all of this. And in fact, you're hit by it even harder because your abuser 
has almost an unlimited pot of money to continue to pursue you. Whereas just yes. because you are co-owner of that multi-million dollar house, just because your name is on uh, you know, some of these assets, doesn't mean that you have any control over it. It also means that if you leave with your children and you have no money in your pocket and you try to seek help from certain organizations, you will be turned away because your name is on these assets. Right. You are over right. you do not fit the minimum income requirement even though you may not have two dimes to rub together in your pocket. There's a wonderful book out uh the only one I know that addresses this issue and I can't remember the author's name but it's called Not uh, to Women Like Us, Not for Women Like Us. Hmm. And it addresses this this issue and uh I think that that's something that we should look at more um more frequently than well, we I believe. Do. The realistic fears of homelessness, It's uh, that's why many survivors sometimes return to the battering yes. relationship. And I'll just uh, share a quote I shared in person with U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley. I said, many women in Oregon and all over the United States who've read my book have written me personally and said, I read your story. I've decided to stay in a violent relationship. I don't want to end up like you, Coral. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh, risk of losing your children, the risk of losing your home, the risk of losing all of your financial security is extremely strong strong out there. And again, I think whenever we have this discussion, uh, we are talking the vast majority of people, divorce, I always say divorce is like childbirth. None of it's easy, but some of it is a heck of a lot harder than others. It seems to me that when we go through this, divorce process it is so easy to think that everyone's divorce is like ours i've had people say to me well this person was complaining so much about this divorce and how it was abused and everything i went through a divorce and it was really tough and now my spouse and i are two years later best friends that doesn't happen in an abusive relationship so when you are talking divorce you're talking the vast majority of people get through it the vast majority of people don't like it. They all have their sad stories about it. They all feel put out. They all feel uh, disadvantaged. They all feel everything like that, but they get through it. We are talking a small percentage of the divorces that are with abusive partners, and those are the ones where these egregious things happen. Um, yes. So, you know, I, I think it's important for people to understand that what we're talking about happens a lot. There's but millions of women in America everybody. that yes, yeah, lost their children not. and have had these types. And I share with people that many mothers who seek safety from abuse, they are routinely prohibited from having even the most basic contact with their own children, not because they were unfit parents, but because they were outspent, outrepresented, and outmaneuvered yes. in a court atmosphere that seems to favor those who inflict domestic violence. So the courts are protecting and I think that's our key, I think yes. I think that what you're saying about being out Spent. That's what we should focus on when we when we hear of a mother who has lost her children. I, I've seen this over and over and over. The first thought that goes through the mind is, "What did she do wrong? What was wrong with her? What was why was she a bad mother?" Well, we need to stop. We the have to blaming. move away from that thinking. Yes. That's not the go-to thinking when we hear about a mother who has lost her children in this day and age. Our go-to and, thinking should yeah. be about the finances. How can I I help? How can I help? Uh, And I will share my last quote to you, too, from my book, and 
I shared um, with mothers that forcibly taking a mother's children and then controlling her emotionally by withholding contact must be publicly recognized as one of the greatest forms of misuse of the American justice system and one of the greatest hidden vehicles for widespread socially approved physical and emotional abuse and control. I, I think that we've covered a lot, Coral, in this discussion. Yes. We started out talking about financial abuse in relationships. We've kind of wandered. We've, we've talked a lot about other things, but it's difficult to just isolate financial abuse from all the other types of abuse that are going yes. on. And it's certainly difficult to isolate financial abuse from court experiences because when you're in a relationship, that's when it starts, and that yes. takes one form or another form. But when you try to leave, and you enter the court system and all the ancillary personnel and all of the housing issues and all of the, um, uh, you, you know, trying to get a job and trying to manage financially, that's when huge abuse and huge egregious abuse occurs when we're talking finances. Could I just... share one thing, too, that the tennis star Serena Williams is the new ambassador to raise awareness about a financial abuse. Um, with domestic violence victims. So that's good news to raise Coral awareness. Anika Teal, if somebody wants to go to your yes. Facebook page, Coral Anika, yes. A-N-I-K-A, Teal, T-H-I-E-L-L. T-H-E-T-H-E-I-L-L. Okay, I misspelled that too. That's all right. That's okay. Yes, <laughs> I'm. T- I'm not on my sharpest. My sharpest today. I, this is I've great. called you Carol three times off air before we got. I've here, really so. enjoyed talking with you, and I do hope this will help um, people, um, coworkers. I hope it'll help people in the churches and uh, neighbors, friends. I hope that people can come to more understanding, and I hope that compassion will go viral especially in situations yeah. and, like this. And I must say, I, I appreciate and understand how difficult it is to grasp what's going on here if you have had no experience with this. It's very difficult to understand, and we want to simplify it. We want to think that it had more to do with uh, a human behavior rather than money, and I think we hit the mark on the money. Coral, thank you so much and join us next week on Three Women, Three Ways. Sorry about the music there. We'll get it rough and running. Thank you, Coral. Join us next time on Three Women, Three Ways.